Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard this scripture probably hundreds of times. That's, you know, I'm sure at least hundreds of times. But I love what this scripture verse is saying because it's telling us something about us. It's telling us something about who we are in this way that we're to operate in the world. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, whoever, how many are whoever's here today? Whoever is a believer in Christ is a new creation. Now I love this. It's talking about the new. It says the old way of living has what? Disappeared. Wow. The old way of living has disappeared. And it goes on to say, a new way of living has come into existence. We talked about this just a little bit ago that Jesus came to show us this brand new way of living. He said, you know, there's this old way of thinking, this idea of separation, this idea of, you know, you're this wretch and, and you need something different and more. And Jesus came to say, no, listen, God's plan for you never changed. How many know that God created man? And he created this with this blueprint, with this design, a design that was built in love. I say this often, but I love this Trinitarian love that the Hebrew scripture, the creation story shows us. It actually shows that there was this this triune God that was face to face in this love relationship. And in the midst of this love relationship, the Hebrews, they show that man was created in the very center of this. Why? Because the Trinitarian God wanted to show love to something other than itself. It wanted to show love. It already had a loving relationship. It understood love. It was love. And it said, now let's create man in our image and likeness. And I'm here to tell you that never changed. What we did is we changed our minds. I love what what Pete said today, that it's not about God changing. It's about us changing. In that word repentance that Pete brought up, in the Greek, it's the word metanoia, and it means to change your mind. Think about this in the gospel. Repentance, it's changing your mind. Confession, how many have heard of that? Confession is saying the same thing as another. So this whole idea of relationship with God is saying, God, I see that your way of living life is so much better than the way I've been living, and so I'm going to change my mind about that. Now I will confess. I will say the same thing that you say about me, about myself. Now think about what would that do in your life? And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we all have these stories that we tell ourselves, don't we? And so I want to talk today about this idea of transaction and trust. Say that with me, transaction and trust. Two different things, two different ways to live. It's really these two different understandings of spiritual life and how crucial this is to walking out our life. Because let's face it, how we live in this world really matters. See, just because we're a church, you know, people could describe this church, they'd say, oh, it's a, one of those grace churches, it's a church full of love. Well, that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter right? I mean, God prepared works for us to do beforehand. It was already prepared in the blueprint. Like, here's the good works. Here's the fruit. Now awaken to your identity and watch yourself walk it out. So there's things that we do, but it's out of who we be. Does that make sense? Maybe not the best grammar, 
but it's out of who we be. So it's a sense of being. How many know we're human beings, not human doings? So what we do should come out of who we be. Amen? So I often talk to myself. I was waiting for a response there. Does anyone here talk to themselves? Listen, we all do. Have you ever heard someone and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just talking to myself. And what do we usually say? As long as you don't answer yourself back, right? But we all talk to ourselves. We all have this inner voice that speaks to us. Let's, let's say, for instance, you're on your way to a job interview. When you're on your way to the interview, you're, you're usually talking to yourself. Okay, I don't want to stutter. I want to say the right things. Uh, I, I hope I don't say something that makes me look stupid. I hope I answer the questions right, right? How about first date? Anyone ever go on a first date? You're like, yeah, it was my last. Well, have you ever gone on the first date? And that first date, you're usually going, okay, is my hair okay? Is my, my, is my breath okay? Am I going to say something stupid? Oh, I better, my mom's always told me to chew with my mouth closed. Maybe this is the one time I should do that. So we're talking to ourselves. We have these inner voices, you know? And in a lot of situations and circumstances come up where we're always talking to ourselves. Sometimes I actually talk out loud and I'll go, okay, I just said that out loud. I'm glad no one was around. One time I had joined this band, this blues band, and I was in the band for about four years. It was a blast. We toured all over the world, had a great time together. But I remember the very first gig that I did with these guys. I had about 20 songs that I had to prepare for, for a gig that was coming up in two weeks. Now, if this was straight ahead rock and roll bass playing, no problem. Just ride the E, baby, you know? But this wasn't. This was like hardcore rock blues. And so I had two weeks to prepare. And this is how long ago it was. I mean, I th- it just seems like it was yesterday. Pete, you were in the band with me. We had a blast. But, but can you believe it was like, I think I stepped out of the band seven years ago, eight years ago? Now, remember, I was in front of my computer. This is before we could stream everything and have it right there in our pockets. I remember sitting in front of my computer, and I was trying to learn each note. I was taking notes. I was writing notes. And the day of the gig comes around. And we do this show, I think it's up in Petoskey, it was up north, and I remember it was in this little club, and, and I had all these notes that I had prepared. Now, all the way up there, I was talking to myself. I was saying, you can do this, you can do this. You know, during the show, I'd look at the notes, and I'd think, I'm trying to concentrate on the song and get into it, but I really couldn't, because I'm thinking about the next song. What's that key? Okay, that's going to be an A. We started with two hits. I constantly had this inner voice telling myself, how I was going to get to the next song and just get through this show without making the band look horrible. That was my only goal. But I was talking to myself. I I was telling myself what it is I had to do and really trying to encourage myself so that I would do a good job. I say that because all of us have an inner voice. All of us have inner voices that speak to us. Now, a lot of times it can be situational like I just spoke about. But here's the deal. A lot of times we're telling a story about ourselves to ourselves. You follow me? And so, what is your story? What is a story that you're telling yourself? How about this? What story are you telling yourself about yourself? It's a lot of yourself, isn't it? But see, we all do. We all have a story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. And so, as I was thinking about this today, I, I went back to a parable. How many love the parables of Jesus? One thing we need to realize about parables is they were designed to disorient us. They were designed to, to uh, uh, put us off balance. They were designed to make us think differently than we did before. 
And Jesus did this all the time. You know, it's easy to read a scripture verse and go, oh, this is the parable of the prodigal son. Oh, this is the parable of this and that. And we, we're like, oh, that's really cool, Jesus. He had stories. But they were meant to disorient. Jesus would say things that in his time and in his culture would disorient people. they go, whoa, whoa, okay, stop for a second, Jesus. Like if he was having a conversation and he started out and said, a man had two sons. And the younger son asked for his inheritance. We're like, oh, that's cool. He just wanted the money. But the Jewish mind would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is offensive. I mean, we're in church, so let's say it's nice. Let's say really nice. He was basically saying, dad, drop dead. Give me my money now. So, so as soon as he started the story, he already was, was setting people on this path of mind change going, okay, Jesus, this is offensive. I mean, we live in this Jewish culture. It's very patriarchal. I mean, the man is the man. And that's disrespectful of the son. So he starts off with this story. And I, I thought about this story because in the last year, I think I've shared from the story several times. But there's so many different facets of these parables and these things Jesus said that we can pull out of there. And I saw something concerning this idea of transaction or trust when it comes to the story of the prodigal son. And I think it gives us some idea of what we tell ourselves in regards to our relationship with God. So here's a brief setup. We already started it. A man had two sons. The younger son says, Father, I want my inheritance. The father doesn't get offended. He says, okay. He gives him his inheritance. He goes off to a faraway land, it says, and he wastes his money on wine and women. He comes to this place where he's hit rock bottom. Can I get a witness? You ever hit rock bottom in life? And as he's sitting there in pig slop, in a pig pen, he tells himself, even my father's servants have it better than I do. And so he decides to go home. Well, on his way home, he starts to rehearse this speech. I've sinned against you and against heaven. And so he has this whole speech prepared. And so as he's approaching, as he's getting closer to the home and he's rehearsing this, it's interesting because there's one thing that he says that really stuck out to me. It's not the fact that he was asking for forgiveness. It's the fact that he says this. He says, I no longer am worthy to be called your son. Now I've read that how many times? And I read this in the past week, two weeks, and I went, wait a minute. He just said he's no longer worthy to be called a son. Now imagine Dads, imagine moms that one of your children came up to you and said, I screwed up so bad, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'm no longer worthy to be your daughter. Now, for me as a parent, I go, whoa, 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 whoa. You've got this all wrong. Your worthiness, your being a son has nothing to do with your actions. You just are. Do you follow me? See, the younger son was telling a story to himself about himself. He's saying, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, we each have a story that we're telling ourselves about our own worth. And we do it every day. And for many of us, many times it depends on how good of a day we've had or how bad of a day we've had. It depends on our actions, what we've done. But what do we base our worth on? What story are we telling ourselves? We could be saying things like, we aren't smart enough. We're not strong enough. We're not accomplished enough. And then we look outward. How many have done this at someone else? Look at that person's more disciplined. They're more moral. They're more pretty. Right, guys? They're more pretty. 
And so we compare ourselves to others and then we tell ourselves a story about ourselves which says that we're not worthy. Do you follow me on this? Because we all tell ourselves stories of our own worth and value. Sometimes we are beating ourselves up or this isn't quite as often, but on the other side of it, it's a bloated ego story about how awesome we think we are. Have you ever ran into that person? We don't have to give their name today. But that person, you're like, man, they think they are the stuff, right? They got it all together. They think they've got it all together. And so there's two sides of this. It's an unworthy side or I've got it down, check me out, and it's this bloated ego. So it can go both ways, but we all have a story that we're telling ourselves. So the son gets home, and before he can even finish this rehearsed speech, the father cuts him off. And I love the next words. It says, he calls to the servants right in the middle of the speech. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He goes, hey, servants, get him a robe. And you're thinking, big deal, a robe? Oh, no, no. In this culture, a robe represented sonship. So the father cuts off the story that he had rehearsed, the speech he had rehearsed, even cuts off the idea, the story he was telling himself about not being worthy to be a son, and instantly he changes it by saying, get him a robe, why? Because he is my son. Can you imagine what the boy was thinking? See, the father has a different story about his son. The father has a different narrative about who the son is. In the father's eyes, this is my son. And nothing the son did changed that. This is amazing to me. I mean, this is a beautiful story to me. So at this moment, think about this. The younger son in the middle of a speech gets cut off, is told that he's a son, even though he doesn't feel worthy to be a son. And at that moment, the younger son has a decision to make. Do I believe my story and I'm no longer worthy to be called a son or do I trust the father's version of my story? What's his version? Kill the fattened calf? Get him a robe? We're going to party. This is my boy. This is my boy. We're going to party. Now, for us, we're like, yeah, I heard that story. It's really cool. (laughs) To the Jewish mind, like, Jesus, you're off. Heresy. He dissed his dad. You know what should have happened according to the law? His dad should have dragged his little butt. We're in church. Dragged his little butt to the middle of the city and said, time to stone him, get the rocks, get the boulders. He's dead to me. Not kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. Can you already see where people's minds were like, okay, Jesus, give me a minute here. It's like when you talk to someone, you know, who's heard the quote unquote gospel all these years about how wretched and bad they are and how God couldn't stand them. And luckily God killed Jesus instead of them. And they're like, yeah, but then you say, no, God loved you so much that he willingly sacrificed himself in your place because you're killing each other anyway. And people go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, stop for a second. Stop, stop, stop. This, this isn't making sense. I, I need to breathe for a minute. See, the gospel does something to us. It does what parables do. It throws us off. It causes us to shift. And if you don't want to shift, the first word out of your mouth is heresy to the other person who's thinking differently. And then we separate and we unfriend them on Facebook. Sorry, you can unfriend me all you want. I don't get offended by it. 
And, and we don't have to agree on everything to be friends and be brothers and sisters. Can I get an amen? But for some people it is. They're so dogmatic and they have God in such a tight box that if you say anything that's outside that box, you're outside the box now and I want nothing to do with you. But even in Jewish tradition, the rabbis would sit around and they would just mull over and go over scriptures. They, they considered it to be like a precious gem with many facets and they would spend time, hours, days debating arguing, getting a little bit miffed about it, but at the end, walk away saying, you're my brother. Yes, you're my brother. Listen, if the premise for friendship is agreement, they're really not your friend. I'm just saying. Friendship goes so much further than agreeing on everything. I have lots of friends who are wrong. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> No, I'm probably wrong a lot of times too, right? Okay, let, let me say this, let me say this. I would not be married to my wife if it was based on agreement all the time. Can I get a witness? Because relationship isn't about agreement. It's about loving each other and saying, let's go on the journey together. And sometimes we can agree to disagree. Now, I think it's important that we see God as the divine in Jesus, God in flesh, showing us a way, a new way of living. That's important. Jesus is important. But sometimes the doctrinal theology stuff, we're all going to vary in it. So it's okay. Sometimes maybe we need to sit down and talk about it. When I started doing that in my life, it opened me up to a whole new world of just awesomeness and freedom and goodness and grace and love. And now it's like, Oh, what is that? Well, I don't know if I agree with that. I'll put that on the shelf and then I'll pray about this and I'll study that. And we don't have to agree. We're still friends, but it's beautiful. And that's kind of what the Jewish tradition has always done. The Hebrews have always done with scripture. They really have always wrestled with it. What does this really mean? But we see here that the younger son had this decision to make in this moment. Whose version of the story would he believe? Does he cling to his version of the story or trust his father's version of his story. Exit scene. The next scene, we pick up the older brother. Now the older brother was working hard as he always did all day in the field. He's working hard on the farm, hard on the plantation, whatever it was for his father. He comes in and he starts to hear music. He starts to hear music in a party. And so he asks this question. He, he says, well in fact, let's pick up here in Luke chapter 15. We'll look at verse 27. He asked what all this noise is about. And the servant told him this. He says, your brother has come home. So your father has killed the fattened calf to celebrate your brother's safe return. Wouldn't it be cool to read the next verse where he said, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And he ran into the party and started eating some fattened calf, hugging his brother and partying and dancing the night away. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. See, here's a brother who stayed home. He didn't take the inheritance. He didn't go off to a distant land. He didn't spend it on wine and women and, and party and do all these things. He stayed hardworking for his dad. And so he was really irritated. In fact, if we look at verse 20, it says, Then the older son became what? Angry. Anger filled his soul, filled his heart. I don't care that my brother's here. Do you know what he did? And it says this, he became angry and wouldn't go into the house. Crossed arms, 
I'm not going in there. I refuse to party for this wretched soul that has come back. Now look at this. The father does something. He comes out, look at this, and he begs him. He begged him to come in. Okay, this is not Jewish culture, okay? Jewish culture, patriarchal culture is when daddy says something, you do it. When he says jump, you say how high. The father comes out. He is in such refusal that the father begins to beg him, please, if you only understood my heart for my son, for my my younger son and for my older son, you would party with me. You would celebrate that he has returned. But he refused as his father begged him. But look at his answer to his father, verse 29. He says, all these years I've worked like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed one of your commands, yet you never given me so much as a little goat for a celebration with my friends. Now stop there for a second. This blows my mind. I never saw this before. But we see a little bit of the older brother, the older son's worth right here. Because he says, you didn't even give me a goat. Now how many know if you were to compare the meatiness of a goat to a fattened calf, there's a big difference. So right here in his words, he was saying, you know what, I, I know that I'm working hard and I probably don't measure up, but I can't even get a goat. I should at least get a goat. Now can you see his mentality and why he was so hacked off at his brother because his brother's celebrating with the fattened calf and yet he couldn't even get a goat. There's something to be said about what he thought his worthiness was. In verse 30, he says, but this son of yours spent your money on prostitutes, and when he came home, you killed the fatted calf for him. What were you thinking, Dad? This isn't right. This doesn't line up with our culture. He should have been stoned. And you know what? I would have been the first one in line to stone his rear end. Can you see how he was feeling here? So the oldest son has a story he's telling himself. Just like with the, with the younger son, what really stuck out to me is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The older son tells himself a story. Here it is. I've worked all these years for you. In fact, I love God's words translation because he says, all these years I've worked like a slave for you. He didn't even see his sonship. I work like a slave for you. I've worked all these years for you. You see, the younger son's story is I'm no longer worthy. The older son's story is I am your son because of all these years that I've played by the rules and worked hard. That's what gives me my sonship. Have you seen this before? Have you heard this story or even told yourself this story about yourself? Listen, I did it right. I was moral. I didn't do that and that and that like everybody else. I suffered for the cause. I've been the good child. Doesn't checking all the right boxes gain me something? I'll be honest with you. I was there several years ago. How much time did I give? Uh, How many services did I play on the worship team? Uh, How many membership classes did I teach? How much money did I give? Thinking that somehow that would gain me something. Now, were those good things to do? No, they're great things to do. 
It's awesome to give of your time and your talent and your treasure. I think we're called to do that, but sometimes we miss the mark. We, we miss the idea when we think that what we do somehow garners us more of something from God. When God says, mm-mm, that's not how I play this game. In fact, it's not a game. This is life. Because look at the father's response to the older son, verse 31. This is, this is huge. He says, my child. See how he started out? My child. I mean, just like when, when the younger son was given his speech, he says, get the robe. In other words, this is my son. He's returned. His status has never changed. The first thing he says to the older brother is, my child, my son, my offspring, You've got to understand this. You've got to see who you are. He says, my child, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. It's already there. You don't have to beg me for a goat. If you want the fattened calf, go get the fattened calf. Everything I have is yours. You are always with me. Are you following this? Essentially, the father is saying that All your years staying home and working hard and being loyal didn't earn your position as a son. You had that the whole time. Man. This is beautiful. Because he says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. So, We understand that the father in this story is the God character, right? Jesus came to this planet, God in flesh, to show us who God really was. He wanted to show us the heart of the father. And and as I look at this, out of all the lines of dialogue that Jesus could give this God character in this story, the words he puts on the lips of the God character are, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Mind blown. Anyone here? Mind's blown? Out of all the lines of dialogue, Jesus, the God character, the divine, Jehovah says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. That is outstanding, folks. You know, let's make this personal this morning. However you view God, the divine, however you want to term that, begin at this point. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. What a beautiful starting point. You see, each son had his own version of his story, and then the father, this is beautiful, think about this, he confronts each son with the father's version of his story. What a choice they had to make. The younger son, his story was, I am not worthy because of all I haven't done. The father's story for him is, this is my son. Give him a robe, kill the fattened calf, let's party. Big difference in the story, right? What was the older son's story? I am worthy because of all that I have done. I have slaved for you all these years. What was the father's story for him? Did you think you were earning being my son? You were always with me, and everything I have is yours. Do you see how the father was saying, no, 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 I have a completely different narrative of your story. 
And so in that moment, even for us, in that moment, do we truly believe that we're worthy? Do we truly believe that we have always been with him and everything he has is ours? We have to ask ourselves these questions. For the father, the story never changed. The boys were his sons. No matter how hard you worked or how, how much lack of work you did, the story, according to the father, never changed. So why is this important? Because for all of us, you and I, we're trusting a story about ourselves. I know for some of us, like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. But think about those quiet times when you're by yourself, you're driving to work, the job that you freaking hate, <laughs> the family that you don't even know if they love you, the wife that you argue with all the time, the so-called friends that are always talking behind your back, like all this stuff is going on and we're telling a story to ourselves about ourselves. But all along, during those moments, the father is telling his version of the story and he's saying, listen, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. Now, what if we made that our starting point every morning when we woke up? You think we'd live a little differently? You think we think a little differently? You think we be a little differently? And I think it's important because sometimes we've made the gospel into this, this idea of tickets to heaven and afterlife. And, and the scriptures say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But I believe that Jesus came to give us salvation. Hey, listen, if you've been going here any amount of time, what does salvation mean? In the Greek, dig it out. It means preservation safety, deliverance, healing, and wholeness. Jesus came to bring that to us here and now. And so in order for us to, to walk in that, we have to believe it. In order for us to believe it, we have to truly believe that we're worth it. Say that with me. I'm worth it. Say it and mean it. I'm worth it. This isn't just something we say and let's just think positive thoughts. This is what God thinks about you. You're worth it. You're worthy. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a child. Will you awaken to who you truly are? Because for many people, the fundamental way that relationship with God, that, that spirituality was explained was in terms of, here's the word, transaction. Say that, transaction. Transaction is the idea that God has done something for you. So here's what you have to do for God in order to make what God has done for you really stick. But here's the truth. It's a finished work. See, transactionalism will say things like, here's what you have to do so that God will do this. But the truth is that God has already done everything he needs to do and that he's going to do because it's a finished work. And so you might go, so pastor, what do we do? One word, trust. I know, it's really simple, right? The gospel is simple though. It's not transactional, it's trust. It's saying, I trust what you say about me. Because if we go further down the other route of transaction, then we're always asking questions like, what do I need to do? Have I done enough? 
Have I done enough this week? Have I done enough today? And then we have to come up with the criteria to make sure that the transaction has taken place. You know what that's called? Dead religion. Can I get a whoa? Whoa. See, oftentimes we made Christianity into religion. Here's the list of rules. Here's the do's and don'ts. Here's what you got to do for God, so who do this for you? And Jesus came to say, uh, finished work. Do you remember the words on the cross, it is finished? He didn't say, hey, it is halfway done. I pray that they would finish it for me. Man, that would be a sad story, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm joking. It was a joke. He says, it is finished. So do we believe it's a finished work? Or do we think that it's transactional? God did something for me. So I'm going to do something for him. And you know what comes out of that? Sermons. And these sermons become messages that beat us up concerning all the things you're not doing. How many have been there? Beating you up over all the things that you're not doing. And even though they use a lot of Bible verses and God and Jesus talk, hallelujah, underneath it all was this huge example of transaction. God did this for you. What are you going to do for him? I preach these messages with good intention because I recognize what Jesus did for me. And it's like, it's so amazing. I mean, look at everything God has done for you. Don't you think you should do something for him at least? And it sounds great, but folks, it's religion. Because the things that you do come out of your love relationship because of what he's done. And it's not because you have to, it's because you want to. I said it earlier, as you awaken to your identity, guess what flows out? Good works. The fruit of the Spirit. And it's not even tough. It's not even rough. It's actually pretty easy. Even to the most ungracious person, you can be gracious. Even to the most unloving person, you can show love. And you're like, how am I doing this? How am I doing this? It's because you've awakened to who you truly are. And that's what you do. If people say, why are you doing this? You can go, it's what I do. What, what? It's what I do. Wow. It kind of reminds me of that one guy, Jesus. Yeah, I follow him. So I make different decisions. When someone does me wrong, I don't look for retribution. I just love them. And I pray for them. What? Wait a minute. Jesus said that? Yeah, he said, pray for those who despitefully use you, for those who persecute you. He said to love your enemy. We don't like to preach those messages. But what I found is the more that I tap into this identity I have, the less enemies I have. And even the way that those people act towards me is because they don't know who they are. I was talking with my wife last night about that. I said, imagine in a world, you know, it's like one of those. But imagine a world where people actually caught on to their identity, realized who they were in Christ, that they were offspring of God. In him we live and move and have our being, the Apostle Paul says. Imagine awakening to that and realizing that instead of living according to a world that operates on, on fear and murder and anger and retribution, now we can operate according to love and grace and peace and restoration. Wow. What would this world look like? Say bye to racism. Say bye to divorce. Say bye to war. I'm telling you, if, if people could latch on to who they truly are, that design that God's given them at the heart of hearts, at the core of who they are, everything would change. Here, now, 
We don't have to wait till the sweet by and by in heaven or the afterlife. We can bring, like Jesus said, heaven to earth now. How many want a little bit of heaven now? Isn't that awesome? So with these messages of transaction, it's always you're not doing enough. But if you would just do this list of things, then perhaps things would be better. There's been a transaction, so now you need to do a transaction to make sure it is effective for you. What Jesus is doing in the story is telling a story about trust. Here's the question. Can you trust that this is who the Father says you are? I mean, that's a question that we need to ask ourselves every day. Can you trust that this is who the Father says you are? Whose version of your story will you trust? Because the gospel is an announcement of who you are. It's a massive reminder of who you are and whose you are. A son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God. The gospel is announcing a new way of thinking and doing and being. But do we trust the story? And if I was honest, I would say there's days I don't trust that story. There are days that I just simply don't trust that story. I need to awaken to that story, remind myself about that story. The gospel is good news about who you are and whose you are. Now, within this whole good news, there is a side called bad news. The bad news is when we choose to trust the old story about who we are, which leads us into all types of destructive paths. If you ever like saw something on the news or you're talking to someone at work and you're thinking, what is wrong with that person? How could they do those things? How could they think? How could they say those things? Let me answer it for you. They don't know who they are. They've lost their identity. Most of us are in an identity crisis. We, we just don't know who we are and whose we are. But when we awaken to that, guess what? We won't go down those destructive paths. We won't hurt ourselves. We won't hurt others. We'll see God in true light and love. We've all experienced this, am I right? See, the story you believe about yourself deeply shapes how you live in this world. And I say that a lot around here, but I believe how we live in this world today matters. Listen, I'm not staying at a rapture bus stop. However Jesus comes back, however it works, I know there's all kinds of theology and different things on that. Here's the, here's the thing. I believe Jesus came to change us and change this world. Do you know that Jesus didn't just create us? He created everything. And the Bible says that everything has been restored and made new. And now we are vehicles of restoration. And so when you see that, you wake up every day thinking, I've got some awesome stuff to do to help change this world. And so we stop looking for a way out, an escape hatch out of this place, and we start to say, I'm bringing some heaven down into this place. Even if it's at work, it's at home, it's at my church, it's at that restaurant or bar I go to every week, where will you bring heaven? What a different outlook on life. See, if you believe at your core that you're unworthy, you tend to act in certain ways that flow out of that. But on the other side of it, if you believe at the core that you are worthy, then you'll act in certain ways that flow out of that. I love this letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to the Ephesians. It's actually called Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And he spends the first few chapters, all he does is tell them who they are. Now think about this. The Apostle Paul is writing to people who aren't perfect, right? He's writing to people, especially the Corinthians, man. Those people were like Vegas on steroids. They were messed up. And he even calls them saints, 
But the first port, I know, isn't that funny? But the first portion of the letter, all he's doing is he's telling them who they are, redeemed, forgiven, holy, set apart, faithful. Paul, why are you saying this to the people? He goes on and on and on telling the people who they are. Then there's a shift partway through the letter where he then starts telling them, now in the light of who they are, here's what we do. See, he never said grace is so great it doesn't matter. He says, no, no, let me set you up for this. This is who you are, redeemed, forgiven, holy, set apart, faithful. And he says, so because of who you are, this is what you do. Say, thank you, Paul. Because you can't get people to do what they're supposed to do unless you tell them who they are. Now, I understand there, there is one version of it where we use fear and manipulation. It can definitely lead to something, but it's called behavior modification. It's not heart change. See, if you tell people who they are, there's always the chance that they'll then know what to do. Because the more we know who we are, the more we know what to do. And so you might sense something different at Faith City. You know, I, I don't manage people's sin. I don't have a list to give you. I simply want you to know more and more who you are because there's this really big chance that if you know who you are, you'll know exactly what to do. Because the real power comes when you announce to people who they are. Think about in your life how you've been transformed. Think about where you were a year ago, two years ago. I've talked to some of you. You're like, Pastor, I... I I can't believe that I've overcome that addiction. It's hard for me to fathom that that thing would just drop off and I have no issue with it anymore. It's hard to believe that I don't burst out in anger at people anymore. But when you think about that, how are you transformed? Are you transformed by long lists of things you aren't? Well, sometimes the church thinks that's what works. You go to church and you hear sermons about everything you aren't. So start to be better. It doesn't work that way. What actually changes your behavior? Like I said, fear and manipulation. It can get some type of behavior modification. But what actually changes your heart so that you live in a new way because you can't imagine living any other way? What will change your heart when you are told a new, fresh word about who you are? Because what it does is it fills you with new awareness of your identity. So the gospel isn't about a transaction. It's all about trust. So will we trust the story of the father? See, the, the younger son has to let go of the old story. The old story is I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he has to trust the new story. Here's a robe. You're my son. Let's party. The older son has to let go of the old story. I am worthy because of everything that I've done all these years and grab onto this new story that it's not what I do that gives me sonship. It's who I am. See, transaction always says, here's the next thing you've got to do. I used to preach those sermons. Come on, guys, we're doing pretty good. Come on, like the little engine that could. Come on, we're doing pretty good. Okay, here's the next sermon. Let's do it. Go! And then you fail, and then you come back to church. How's it going? Oh, blessed and highly favored. It's going great. <laughs> you know, fake it till you make it, right? I mean, have you been there? 
You're like, I fell back into that sin. I did this again. I treated my spouse that way. This, how's it going? Blessed and highly favored, man. That's going great. Everything's awesome, man. Because you're afraid to tell somebody you screwed up and messed up. Because you tried with your own willpower instead of identifying who you truly were and letting that love and that grace flow through you. Let Christ in you live his life through you and suddenly change the way you think, act, and the way you be. So that's why we preach what we preach here. That's why we talk about what we talk about here. Because I believe in you. I believe that you're worth it. I believe everything you need for life and godliness is already on the inside of you. So awaken to it. Say yes. I agree with Jesus. I agree with my heavenly father that I am a son. I am a daughter. I am a child. And everything I do flows out of who I already am. Get your identity straight. Amen. What does trust say? Trust says, I believe the Father's story about me. Because sometimes other people try to tell a story about you. You've been there. You've done that. You had to get out of those relationships. I want to bring this full circle and just wrap up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is out of the Mirror Bible. I love this translation. It says, now in the light of your co-inclusion in his death and resurrection, whoever you thought you were before, in Christ, you are a brand new person. Isn't that beautiful? Look what he says. The old ways of seeing yourself and everyone else are over. And I love this last line. He says, acquaint yourself with the new. You could put it like this. Hey, get used to it. It's who you are. Will we trust the Father's story about us? Because I'm telling you, when we trust his story, we can actually kind of sit back and watch the transformation begin. I speak from experience. I have not arrived, but I'm telling you, the more that I allow him to change my mind, allow that repentance to go on, especially about my story, and I start to believe his story about me, everything changes. Transformation takes place. Romans 12, 2, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to change our minds. We have to change the story. We have to let go of the old story and cling to, latch on to the new story that the Father sing, that the Father speaking to us. Amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.